Hi, this is Mike Aquilina, author of Friendship and the Fathers, and you're listening to Pints with Jack. Ransom was quite unable to point Earth out to them in the night sky. They seemed surprised at his inability, and repeatedly pointed out to him a bright planet low on the western horizon. He asked them the name of the bright southern planet, and was told that it was Thulkandra, the silent world or planet. This is Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 11, The Quiet Place. Out of the Silent Planet, Chapter 11. Welcome, everyone. Here on Pints with Jack, we're reading our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. I'm Matt, and I'm joined by my lovely co-hosts, Andrew and David. This season, we find ourselves among the stars, reading through the first of C.S. Lewis's science fiction trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet. And I have to say, guys, we have one dense episode planned today, to the point where we're not sure if this is going to be split into two episodes yet. But we're not only going to be getting into the 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 hierarchy of Melacondra, you know, what is the entire spiritual realm and start teasing this and the different creatures on there and how to interact. We're going to start building this out and piecing it together. But more than that, if that wasn't enough, we're going to be touching on pleasure, a little philosophical tangent that Lewis goes on, although it fits it nicely in. War, fallen creatures. We're going to start to see fallen versus non-fallen and so much more. So get ready for an action-packed episode. But before we dive in, since Lewis does not give his chapters any names, this season we're going to be naming each episode after a movie title. Now, there were a lot of possible candidates presented by David for today's episode title, given that so many different topics are touched in this chapter, as I've already alluded to. Since we learn more about the different races on Melacondra, we were tempted to name it after the 2011 movie The Tree of Life, which of course I have never seen. But because today we discover that our planet is called Thulkandra, the silent planet, I thought we had to go, and by we and I thought, we mean David thought, we had to go with the amazing 2018 movie, The Quiet Place, which I have seen. Yeah. I love John Krasinski. Yes. <laughs> Starring the husband and wife team of Emily Blunt and John Krasinski. Emily Blunt would be like, and I want to ask you like their celebrity crush. Her personality is just so incredible. I think Emily's fantastic. So, Well, she is English. I have a weird thing. You know, I don't know. Like, what is with Emily? If I had to, like, name my three celebrity crushes, Amelia Clark, Emma Watson, Emily Blunt. Okay. <laughs> like, they're all very similar first names, which is very weird now that I think about it. They all have great personality. Well, I don't know much about Emma Watson, but I loved Hermione Granger. Well, they are all English. And we English, we just have a magnetism that just draws people to us. Yeah. Mm. Is that what it is? Oh, you're right. Yeah. I never thought that, actually. I really teed you up there, David. You did. That was unexpected. Well, gentlemen, I'm excited to be recording again. I feel like we're getting in our groove with this season. I feel mm. like we're with the recording, and so um, I'm looking forward to this. But first, what have you guys been up to? Well, just uh, carrying on. We're going to talk about some of this in our common room episode that we'll record right after this. But um, two weeks into ordination, and gosh, it's been a busy morning. I'm writing an article for our diocesan magazine um, and using a couple of quotes from Narnia, an Easter article. And I've got a sermon on 
on Sunday. So that's some work. And I'm presiding at a funeral, um, celebrating the Eucharist at a funeral tomorrow and vestry meeting orientation tonight. And yeah, it's a, and this is my day off. So, um, <laughs> so lots and lots of that and still kind of getting over the, the nastiness that, um, that I had. So I'm just plugging along. How about you, David? Well, Pints with Cheston listeners will already know this, but I'm very happy to say that at the time of recording, my wife Marie has just entered the second trimester of her pregnancy. Yay! I thought your I thought your birth announcement was amazing. <laughs> Thank you mm -hmm. very much. That <laughs> it was a picture of all of the various pints for Jack glasses, but you had a little Glencairn glass tucked inside a pint glass to represent my unborn child. Well, I, I'm not going to lie. Marie's first trimester was pretty rough. She gets really bad nausea when she's pregnant, so she's pretty much incapacitated mm. for much of the day, meaning that I've had to take mm. on a lot more at home and been rather rushed off my feet. But thankfully, things are now starting to get back to normal, uh, which is just wonderful. <laughs> and one of the things okay. is I'm actually now back on my own Peloton. I pretty much didn't do any of it for the first trimester. Uh, and I actually also had the first listener uh, become a friend with me on Peloton. And if anybody else would like to ride with me, my username is David Lewis Bates. So that would be an awful lot of fun if you came and suffered with me. And for people that don't actually have a Peloton yet and are thinking of getting one, uh, reach out to me via the website because I've got a $200 off referral code for you. Mm. Can you ride through Narnia? <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. A C.S. Lewis themed one. And speaking of Peloton, actually, we should, you know, as we do our prayers just keep in prayer leanne hainsby she's actually my favorite instructor i use her all the time she has cancer oh mm. she's yeah. actually been battling it she said for a number of months but finally just announced it last week someone texted me it because they know how much i love her classes and just an incredible disposition you'd never notice i mean she's been recording kind of once a week and keeping it up keeps her energized she said as she goes through chemo thanks mm. Anyways, well, gentlemen, I'm excited because we're all drinking the same thing today. <laughs> yes, at last. This is a, a very, very generous gift by Andrew over Christmas, uh, like a tasting set of six. And we're all drinking his Coila? Col Coila. Ila. Coila. Yeah. So it's not much of a departure for me. I, I can't <laughs> remember which one it is. I'll have to compare notes with you guys. But um, I've already drunk one of them. So I've dipped into one. So we won't be... I, I did it on the show. I, you know, I announced it. Um, well, we don't usually but, um, do the tasting notes anymore, but since we're all doing the same ones, I'll just read here from your little thing. Ah, yes. Sweet, peaty, orange, smoky, malty biscuit, apple, and cinnamon. So I'm excited to see if we can't get a little smoky, malty, sweet. Oh, now I want a malty biscuit. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't we have to say cheers in a special language first before you two start gobbling that down? Oh, yes. Well, <laughs> you know. So this this week we're going to be saying it in Italian for our language, which is chin chin, chin chin, chin chin. All right. Well, Andrew, would you like to give us our toast this week? We toast our top tier supporter Jocelyn Jackery, and if I pronounce that wrong, please correct me. I hate getting names wrong. By the time this episode releases, we'll be drinking scotch in your ears in Lent. And I pray that if that's something you observe, this lengthening of the days and the quieting of the spirit as we contemplate uh, our Lord's suffering and his resurrection, I pray that that is uh, a guiding light to you uh, during your week. So, chin chin. Chin chin. Chin chin.
All right. Well. Wait. No. Tell us how wonderful the scotch is. Oh, it's phenomenal. Well, David, do you have the same one as me? Yours looked a lot more amber than mine does. Yeah. Hold that up. Okay. Yeah, it does look, does look a little more amber though. But. <laughs> um, oh, my, my flex of the week. I got a, um, oh, I forget what it's called. It's a Miles Morris beer, I think, bureau. Batesian rigidity is dying right now. <laughs> um, and this is the first ballpoint pen that was kind of mass produced. It cost two pounds, which is a small fortune. But this is the kind of pen that C.S. Lewis. And I got some ink <laughs> on my hand. So... I, that was why I was laughing. Ever since you've started down this retro pen fascination, I know. you were covered in ink the entire time. Uh, the biro was invented for a reason. <laughs> Try to be an inkling. Actually, in the mailbox are 144, uh, which is unfortunately called a gross of the um, William Mitchell pen nibs. And I have a parishioner who's going to make me a pen stick for them. So, yeah, going full out. In fact, uh, Laura Schmidt at the Wade Center sent me some pictures of Lewis's exercise books. So I'm trying to track down some of those old school exercise books. So <laughs> getting as close as we can. Well, cheers. Chin, chin. Chin, chin, chin. Now, the 100-word summary. Ransom finds himself on an unexpected journey. Starting with a simple walk, he was transported against his will by Weston and Divine to a foreign planet, Melicandra. He slowly pieces together that he is an offering for some local creatures, but doesn't know much about them. He's afraid, but there's a curiosity as well. After landing, when some of the foreign creatures were coming their way while they were all still three together, he found an opportunity to run away through what could be described as a forest. He now finds himself encountering a local species called Haras and is learning more about the local planet. Do we have a vocabulary test right now, David? Please. No. Yes. Now, oh. now, now we have a new section. I'm calling it Philology So Far. So, <laughs> Matthew. What is the Malacandran word for ground or earth or planet? Mm, Andra. Very good. Mm. Question number two. <laughs> what does Handramit mean? That's, uh, oh, it's either lowlands or highlands. I think that's lowlands. So your final answer? It's the lowlands. It's the valley. Boom, <laughs> lowlands. Brain, baby. <laughs> Where the water was hottest. Well, then what is the word for mountain or plateau? Literally, high earth. I couldn't remember because it wasn't. So you had Handra, Handramit. It wasn't Handraka. That was something different. That's the shark thingy. Bum, 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 bum. I don't know. It's got Handra in it. Yes, it's Harandra. Harandra. There we go. Okay. Question number four of five. What is the Hross word for human? Oh, it's like Hanau or Haman. Haman. Point to Andrew. <laughs> yeah. What's Hamao again? Or Hanau? H N. Hanau is a sentient being. Yeah. We're going to be talking about that today. I was close. What is the plural of Sorn? Saroni? Saroni. Very good. Oh, well my done, Matthew. Passed with a D. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take it. There Wonderful. Well, we will return to this again next week with new vocabulary, which we're going to learn today. But I'm going to continue to like not actually study for this because it makes it more fun. Just what what do I naturally retain? That's what we're testing is Matt's retention. 
Hey, Matt, what is, what are Hresni? I've never, I don't even remember reading that word. <laughs> Chapter two. Do you remember that, David? David, don't, don't answer it yet. I do. I, do know I bet it it's is. already on a list somewhere. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. it, well, if you, know what a, if you know what a hross is, and you know what hrossa is the plural, what yeah. might be hrosni? Hrosni. The young ones? No, too female. Mm -hmm. It's female. Yeah. So you've got hross is the male, hrosni is the singular female, and hrosa is the plural. This explains so much. I assumed Rosa was the female just because of my Spanish upbringing. You end with an A. Um, I took a ton of Spanish in college and stuff. And so I've, I was, I've been operating this whole time under the assumption Rosa is female. Turns out Malacandrian and Spanish aren't that close. <laughs> yes, the no. Romans didn't conquer Mars. <laughs> Clearly. And I wonder what Tolkien would have made of all of this language. I wonder if he would have liked that bit. Oh, I think he'd have loved it, but I think he'd have wanted it more detailed and he would like that Malacandrian grammar and a full dictionary. Yeah. I bet he probably started to write one and then gave it up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Matt's in rigidity now. Let's jump in, gentlemen. Okay. We start the chapter with Ransom doing something he never thought he'd do while on the spaceship. Being. I love that word. Living life among the harass, he has routines, has learned some of the language, and even played with the young. As to be expected, his preconceived notions are beginning to be corrected. So I want us to unpack this a little bit as we dive into this. We're, we're learning about the harass, harass, civilization. And what we're learning so far in this section is sleep eat, swim, talk. The young were sort of like puppies. His first diagnosis, which we're going to learn is going to be changing as he learned more and more, but was kind of like the stone age, an old stone age. Instruments were made of stone, clumsy vessels for boiling water. Dwellings were beehive shaped. There was no arts, except there was a sort of poetry in music. So there's, there's a little bit fishing, trade, and agriculture. And so gentlemen, you know, one thing as we dive into this section, you know, one thing I've been thinking of, of lately, and this is more of a comment, but I'm just curious if you guys have any thoughts on this is, you know, he comes into this with these preconceived ideas and he was taught them by an echo chamber of the stuff that he's read, the content he's consumed. He talks a lot about HG Wells in here. And as he encounters he realizes the fears that he had built up through this content were wrong. And in fact, he's kind of enjoying getting to know these individuals and it's very different. And I, and I wrote here experiential learning because I feel like there's something we can learn from this book actually. Sorry, this is a bit of a tangent right in the beginning of this, but of how you know, so much of today in this world of social media and controlling the content that we receive and creating a very curated input, I think is allowed to or led to a very polarized world in misconceived notions of people with different values, different views. People really are isolating from it. And I just found this to be this whole book, but this section itself to be a good reminder that a cure to a lot of our fears is honestly just experiencing differences, going into the unknown, being in that liminal space and, and being willing to uh, be challenged and curious. I, you know, Ted Lasso, David, for some reason you had Ted Lasso in the very beginning of this as a potential thing in the hook. You know, he says, be curious, not judgmental. I think mm -hmm. there's such a beauty to that. That's one of my favorite scenes in the entire TV show, Ted Lasso. And so anyways, I just, I just start with that because 
this is already sticking out to me in this section. And I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but this book itself, I see a lot of that. And I believe it's a beautiful reminder to all of us to, to be curious and not judgmental. Hmm. And to do that with communities and groups that are not our own. Uh, I really get Dances with Wolves vibes from this mm -hmm. section. Or if you were hmm. born after 1990, I get Avatar vibes <laughs> from this section. <laughs> because both stories are about somebody entering into a very foreign world. And he's initially distrustful of it, uncertain of it, things seem strange. But he ultimately finds beauty in it and embraces it. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's real life, you know, it's normal life. And we've talked you know, many times about how uh, Lewis was interested in the spiritual ramifications of space travel. And what he finds is this kind of average quotidian life. Now it's, we're looking forward to the way to the end of the season, but in the, um, the, the postscript, um, one of the things, two of the things that Ransom complains about Lewis's story. So the Lewis character ends up writing Ransom's story. And when he presents the manuscript, um, as we have it now, Ransom laments that the language part, the philological part was cut down. And uh, maybe <laughs> we hear echoes of Tolkien. Mm -hmm. He also says the real story, to treat it as a story, we must telescope the time I spent in the village during which nothing happened, but I grudge it. Those quiet weeks, the mere living amongst the Hrosa are to me the main thing that happened. And maybe, and I don't know, so this is 38, and Diana Glyer would be a great one to ask this question. You should make a note, Matt, and when we talk to her again, you should ask her about this. She's really good on showing how in the second Hobbit, the new Hobbit, which becomes the Lord of the Rings, Tolkien's really super excited about lots of Hobbit talk. And that's the stuff that he really likes. Um, and Lewis encourages him to cut it down. It's too self-indulgent. Mm -hmm. And so he does, and it makes a much better manuscript. So I wonder if here, Lewis and Ransom's discussion at the end of the book about this very period, their kind of just average everyday life in, in Malacandra, life in the Handramat, um, is kind of like life in Hobbiton. And I wonder if, um, if Lewis is kind of echoing his own advice that he gave to Tolkien. Well, would you guys make one final thing in this section that that I didn't know if I was reading too much into it. Sometimes I'm trying to read too much into it now that I know there's so much from the conversations I've had with some of the scholars, but he mentions the pinkish white weed that covered the whole Handramat. So like everything they're gonna base was editable. Mm -hmm. But then he says no harass, however, ate the weed for choice. So you have this food, essentially a basic sustenance that's not necessarily choice number one, but it's always there. But it said it might be used for a journey. Kale. <laughs> I mean, it sort of sounds something kind of like that where it's not super enjoyable, but I wasn't sure, like what, what did you make of that comment? Like why was it important to, why would Lewis, Lewis seems to be very intentional that there's this basic thing that over the entire ground that's fully edible. Most people don't really eat it, but if you're on a long journey, I got the sense it could be like sustenance on a journey when you need it. And is it like God going to later parts of this chapter, we're gonna talk about how God provides what is needed. Is that, or Maladil and Oyarsa, is that is that something here? Do you, do, do you think Lewis is trying to communicate something or is it just, am I reading way too much into this concept of this pink weed? 
I think that there is something here. It does speak at the very least to the provision of the land, its fecundity, mm -hmm. and you could extrapolate from there to the creator, whom we will find out about later. And I think there's also an allusion. I think that there's also a point being made about perspective, because the idea of somebody starving to death while surrounded by food is rather tragic. And so the mm -hmm. difference here between life and death is perspective, to be in right relationship with the land and knowledge of the land. You know, I think that there's another aspect of that as well. We find in Israel's history, this cycle of sin and redemption and manna in the wilderness as this kind of supernatural sweet, you know, provision, but it's under, you know, under duress. It's in extraordinary circumstances. And, you know, our Lord, of course, uh, says in, in the prayer that he taught us to give us this day our daily bread. And there's this kind of stunning lack of fear or danger or grasping or materialism. One would even wonder if this is a fallen world. Are they sinners? Right? And if they are not, or if sin doesn't seem to prevail, certainly the way that it does on Thulkandra and our world, maybe this is kind of very quotidian manna that God is going to provide. You know, later on he asks them about, well, what if this one wants more food? This race wants more food. Well, why wouldn't we give it to them? You know, and, Mal and Maladil will provide all that we need. So there's this kind of faith life that's going on. And I wonder if it's maybe a faith life of a world that is not fallen or even less fallen, that, um, that Maladil would provide all the sustenance that they need. They would kind of uh, take it in trust and not abuse it. And so it's a different economy going on. I like that. Just before we leave the section, I do want to point out a little sentence that I absolutely adore because it, it explains that Ransom is a real hit with the cubs, with the little horsa and their mothers. It says, the cubs on their part felt the liveliest interest in this hairless goblin which had appeared among them. <laughs> hairless goblin, I like it. Yes. And with them and therefore indirectly with their dams, he was a brilliant success. And I don't know why, but I have this note uh, it says, um, a note reminding my, me of the C.S. Lewis conference in San Diego in, I think, 2007 or something. And I wonder if um, my, I wonder if I was a hit with Sierra Glyer, and that made me a hit with her mother. But Sierra came along, and we all loved her. And and uh, I don't know, I can't remember what that was all about. But yeah, hit with the with the mother uh, or hit with the babies will be a hit with the dam. You might be a goblin, but you certainly aren't hairless. <laughs> <laughs> no. And less so then. All right. Well, now push it forward. The real learning happens as Ransom starts to develop an understanding of their language mm -hmm. and can both ask and answer questions. So it leads to some pretty good dialogue. Now, interestingly, as they ask him about where he comes from, he starts with a childish version of the explanation. Why does he do this and how does that work out for Ransom? <laughs> Did you make that statement, David? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Sometimes I go through these notes, I see the green, I'm like, the green's always me, listeners. And I'm like, I don't remember writing that, but. <laughs> I just turned what you said it. into a question so we could chat about it. 
<laughs> I can always tell your type of language versus mine. I'm like, yeah, I don't, that doesn't sound like me, but I like it. We'll roll with it. Well, I mean, he's still laboring under the assumption that they are either infantile, puerile, you know, servile, or else they're monstrous. And having gotten over the fear of their monstrousness, he still suspects that even in this chapter, that somebody's manipulating them, that there's a secret agenda going on. So he starts to explain things kind of simplistically and it just didn't really understand the kind of intellectual and even educational on some level, uh, advanced level that he's finding amongst the Rosa. Mm. And I think that does remind us that the intellectual life doesn't necessarily always leave traces. My wife at the moment is going through the everlasting man. And there Chesterton makes the point that all we can say about man before history, before things started getting written down, is what has survived. Who knows, maybe like the Throssa, they had a thriving poetry scene, or in, <laughs> perhaps even understood astronomy rather well. Absolutely. I do like the bit, though, when he says he, he, uh, he's, he was from the sky, and they point out that that can't be the case because there isn't any air up there. He must come from a planet. Which one was it? <laughs> yeah, it, is, it is interesting here how it goes back to what we've said before. He, he's constantly updating his worldview, and he came in with a childish worldview. He thought they were primitive. They were the old Stone Age, I've already used that language. And I do think it is funny how they're like, yeah, you, you couldn't have come out of the sky. Oh, well, maybe they're not quite as dumb as I thought. And then boom, there's Chuck. He's he's getting a little bit smarter. So it'll be curious how uh, this all continues to evolve. But They certainly seem to know much more about astronomical physics than, uh, than he gives them credit for, or uh -huh. even that he does. Um, he finds that, and this is one of the best educated people on the planet. He's a Cambridge a Cambridge uh. professor, and he's uh, shockingly ignorant, um, which is, I think, refreshing. <laughs> so, And at the time that Lewis wrote this, he was still an Oxford man, so I'm pretty sure he was happy endorsing that point of view. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. All right, and gentlemen, the Harasa seem to think that Ransom is from this planet called Volcandra. What does that mean? The silent planet. Pop culture reference. Uh, the, there's a band from a three-piece hard rock band, marvelous um, outfit, whose uh, first album was called Out of the Silent Planet. And I interviewed their guitar player and St. Anne's on the Hill from That Hideous Strength was a, a crucial moment for him. And they were all um, pretty well read in Lewis. Yes, the planet is silent. We'll understand why um, soon. Uh, but here we have a refrain, which we're going to hear again and again, which is, we don't know, but the Cerrone will. So mm -hmm. I'm taking it upon myself. If there's any question that Matt asks us over the course of this episode, I'm just going to respond saying the Cerrone would know about that. <laughs> Conversation continuing between Ransom and Harasa. And they ask him how he came to be on Malacandra. And, and this is where he, he brings up Weston. He brings up Divine. And he wasn't sure if he should or not, but he does. And they suggest to him that he should seek protection from the Oyarsa. And so this is the first word we're learning about this Oyarsa. And so we're starting to see in here in this sec in this section, continuing to unpack the hierarchy of Malacandra. We're starting to learn about the different creatures. We've got the Harasa, the Cerrone, who is Oyarsa. And so, gentlemen, what do we what do we know at this stage? Well, we know that the Oyasa is the ruling creature of the planet. He lives at some place called Meldalorn. And it's also suggested that he's perhaps almost omniscient and eternal. 
and he is something other than a Frost or Sorn. And I found in Dr. David Downing's book, Planets in Peril, that uh, the name Oyarsa comes from Bernardus Silvestris, who was a 12th century Platonist, and he used it to mm-hmm. describe a tutelary spirit, uh, a higher order angel of a planet. So the, basically the guardian angel of the planet. And we also find out that the world was made and ruled by Meleldil the Young, who lives with the Old One, who apparently is not that sort that has to live anywhere. And they bark in disapproval when he asked if Oyarsis made the uh, Oyarsa um, made the world. Um, it seems an almost heretical idea to them. Mm. So we're starting to get some some theological and cosmological hints. Interesting that they said Maladil the Young. A spirit without body parts or passions. A little bit different than what we would think of if, if we're assuming kind of a God-Jesus type relationship. Would you say nope. Jesus has no passions? Nope. Um, let's be careful. Um, it's not that Jesus has no passions. Jesus certainly does have passions. But the Son has no passions. If we think about the impassibility of God, which is one of the doctrines from Aquinas on back, um, that God being perfect cannot be made to suffer. And so that all of the suffering that happens, uh, happens in the body of Jesus, but doesn't happen to the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. And so I think Lewis is here kind of evincing orthodox theology about the impassibility of God because they're talking about Malaldil the Young and he lives with the Old One. Hmm. So theologians will make a careful distinction linguistically between God the Son and the incarnation of God the Son, which was Jesus who took on a body. Right. So, and it's, we could go way off the deep end theologically here, but I think that Lewis is being correct theologically. Mm. Maybe I'll get someone on the show to talk about classical theism, because I think he's alluding to some of these other elements of it as well. Yes. This is why I brought it up. I figured wise father Lazo (laughs) would provide us some insights. But we're starting to get these kinds of hints, um, which is great. And I don't want to run too far ahead, but in this next paragraph, he is not that sort that he has to live anywhere. Um, and he said a good deal, which Ransom did not follow, as most theologians do, and as most <laughs> of the typical reaction is. But he followed enough to feel once a certain irritation. He felt that it was his duty to undertake the Frost's religious instruction. Now, as a result of his tentative efforts, he found himself being treated as if he were the savage and being given a first sketch of civilized religion, a sort of Frostian equivalent of the shorter catechism. (laughs) And so that's one of the great moments of this whole book is that Lewis, interested in the spiritual ramifications, thinks that he has to be a missionary. And in fact, he finds that Ransom is the mission field and needs to be taught as theology almost as well as he needs to be taught as astronomy. Well, that was the next question I was going to move to. So what do we learn in that part? As he's being catechized of, of what, what, what's he learning of the spiritual realm? Well, as we mentioned, he's, um, there's a question about whether or not he's a now. Is he a sentient being? Hmm. And the question about now He's not now. What is now, said Ransom? You are now. I am now. The Saroni are now. The Fiffeltrigi are now. And so we learn that there's a third species. Um, but they are all, um, I think the, the best definition of a now is a sentient being. 
right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to push back on that a little bit because we're told that Maleldil isn't Hanel. Hmm. So I would maybe say a sentient creature, a rational creature. Okay. Whereas if, if, if we're going to deny Maleldil the title of Hanel, then we can't, it can't be anything less than, for, for want of a better word, human. Okay. And let's see, where does he say that? So, oh, but they ask if, if um, Oyarsa is now. Mm-hmm. And they said, maybe, but a different kind of Hanau, which if these are angels, it's, mm-hmm. it's, there is a slight difference because they are, at least under the classical conception, there is variance within Christian history on the understanding of this. But angels are incorporeal. They don't have bodies. So there's a different right. kind of intelligence. It's a bodiless intelligence. Yeah. So actually, yes, I would. Um, and I was, I was mistaking my point. Um, yeah, I would absolutely agree with you. Malodil is not now, but Oyarsa is now. And it has to, I think, do with created, uh, created sentience. And it's funny how they say, well, he is now, but he's not now. You know, he doesn't have a body, he doesn't get young, but he, you know, he does have some, some qualities that are, um, that are there. And this concept is going to be refined a little bit later in the book. And it's also refined a little bit in Perilandra as well. And I found in one of Lewis's essays that he thinks that he was influenced to choose this word from the Greek word nous. And if you're an Eastern Christian, this is going to be a word that's very familiar to you because it's it's the concept of mind uh, and is Mm. used a lot by some of the Eastern church fathers. Mm -hmm. And I also dug this out from the corresponding essay to this book, Religion and Rocketry. There he says, supposing there were, have any of these animals what we call rational souls. By this, I include not merely the faculty to abstract and calculate, but the apprehension of values, the power to mean by good, something more than good for me, or even good for my species. If instead of asking, have they rational souls, you may prefer to ask, are they spiritual animals? Mm. I think we shall both mean pretty much the same. If the answer to either question should be no, then of course, it would not be strange at all that our species should be treated differently from theirs. So I, I think spiritual animals is also another explanation that you could have of Hanau, which is why Maleldil is not Hanau. Yeah. Um, when is that published? 1958. And so you hear these elements of good for us or good in general, um, that's an idea that, that, um, that Lewis has been working on and teasing out all of his career, his first uh, series of ex- essay or his lectures as a Cambridge Don or an Oxford Don were the good and its place amongst the moral virtues or amongst the virtues. And in Mere Christianity, he's talking about good and what we mean by good and does it go beyond instinct. And so here in 58 is kind of maybe some of the last of his thinking about it. I also have been noticing, and Matt, it was it was sparked by your question about the the planet providing sustenance. Um, what we're learning about in this chapter is, well, the great enemies, um, the scripture says, is, are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And those are the sorts of the sources of all kinds of temptation and evil for humans. What we find on Malachandra is the world, the flesh, and the angel, right? And we're learning about the angel Oyarsa and the angels, the Eldila, and we'll get to those in this chapter. But here we have a benign world. Here we have a world that is not arrayed against humans in the way that our world is because we are the silent planet. And so ah. it's not the world, the flesh, and the devil as the enemies. 
so 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 just to, to unpack that slightly more so you have i like where you're going or i think we're going with this is so we're going to learn in the next chapter this idea of a bent creature non-bent creature and really it's like kind mm-hmm. of a non-fallen planet non-fallen flesh they're not really betrayed by the flesh in the way that we're kind of betrayed by the flesh we're going to learn that in the pleasure section you're kind of saying their planet the world they're not really betrayed by that either it's not a mm-hmm. not it's a kind of a non-bent world so you have a non-bent creature non-bent devil which is an angel and a non-bent mm-hmm. flesh yeah absolutely yeah absolutely and that parallels with genesis in the curses as man has to toil to get his food and what saint paul says about all of creation is groaning for mm, redemption. Yes, yes. Mm. So the curse isn't in the ground. There's no thorn in the ground. Um, yeah. Now that's not to say that there are no dangers in nature, but as we find at the end of, of chapter 12, even the danger of the Nakra is an invigorating, even a life-giving danger. Yeah. And so it's a safe planet, which I think is kind of ironic in that he's in the Mars or warlike planet. The war is with himself. <laughs> His yeah, preconceived well, statement. yes, and with the other two who are still <laughs> on this planet. Um, at this point, it may be well to call to mind um, Michael Ward's distinction about Mars. And he also reminds us there, there that one of the titles of Mars, the god of war, is Mars Sylvanus, Mars of the forest. And you see him as the god over Prince Caspian. And so it's this forest, it's this natural world that can be nurturing. Um, and so it's not nature red in tooth and claw here on Mars. Even in the most warlike planet, there's a surprisingly little amount of war, especially amongst the species and against the planet itself. One thing I just want to briefly add regarding that quotation from religion and rocketry. In those questions that Lewis asks, is it good for me? Is it good for my species? That's actually a nice way of summing up the attitudes of divine and Western. Mm-hmm. Because divine only cares about himself, and Western only cares about humanity. Nice. No, that's in the nice. idea. Very nicely observed. Yeah, excellent. Love when Andrew's like, nice. You earn my scholarly imprimatur. <laughs> well, and Andrew, you had mentioned another creature that let's unpack a little bit: the pif- piffle Flitrigi. Guys, should let me just try that on my own. <laughs> Could have been funny. You never like to see a poor animal suffer. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, the Cerrone, we Cerrone know. <laughs> you know what? Oyarsa will protect me. Okay. Well, Maladil, I am of Maladil. You can be of Oyarsa and, or Paul or Apollos. <laughs> I'll be of Maladil. Well, so we, we did just unpack this Hana and we've now. talked about the Horasa, the Cerrone, this Piffafafatrigalanamadi is also Hanau. And so we've got these three Hanau, uh, these rational creatures with language. And so what do we, what do we, what do we learn about them, gentlemen? What are they? Well, the Fiffeltrigi, they're kind of like the dwarves from the Lord of the Rings. They're small in stature. Mm-hmm. They're the engineers. They're the craftsmen. Uh, he describes them as tapir-headed, frog-bodied animals. And we find out that they like to make stuff with gold, which we find is called Arbalhru, sun's blood. And this reveals what Divine's interest is in Malacandra, because he's all about mm-hmm. the money and expensive women, if you recall. Yeah. The other thing we learn about the Fiffeltrigi is that Lewis is really bad at giving names. It's <laughs> <laughs> a terrible name. I um, don't know. Separates and- the men from the boys. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's what you call a backhanded slap. <laughs> no, no, no. 
and I think that there are times where uh, McDonald also doesn't really do names all that well. Um, and so I think that this is an instance where, um, yeah, I wonder what the Inklings said about the Pfiffeltriggy. Um, so Maybe they didn't see it spelled because the spelling is pretty gnarly. Yeah, it's true. Although Lewis would press man, I don't know if he pressed the manuscript on anybody, but I would be surprised if he did. Oh no, Tolkien said that he had read it. Okay, okay, yeah. I wonder if there's a source because Hrosa is from is from Old Norse, meaning horse, um, but I'm not sure. Well, speaking about the planet as a whole, I was just it's kind of arranged like Plato's Republic. So you've got the Sorns, who are the philosophers, the intellectuals. You've got the Hrosa, who are the soldiers. And the Fifth Triggy are the craftsmen. They're the ones who make everything. Hmm. And I think we mentioned in an earlier episode, this is kind of like St. Paul's body of Christ. The idea that you have different parts of the body um, that each serve in their own way with their own speciality. And they're all needed by each other. Mm -hmm. Never forget that, David. Which are you, a, a toe? <laughs> which, which body part <laughs> do you want to take? <laughs> yeah. I'm working towards the brain. I'm working towards the brain. <laughs> You're currently an appendix. Or, or <laughs> We're sure you, you're used for something. We haven't quite worked it out yet. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that this harmony, I mean, even Ransom, who's a Christian and who's willing to believe and who is spending all of this time, even he can't conceive that there's this racial, interracial harmony. And, you know, I love how people claim that Lewis is racist and, you know, closed-minded. Um, and that's just because they haven't read this book. I mean, here you have three species with different capacities and different gifts. There's no need to press the Sorns to write poetry or the Rosa to make, you know, make devices. They all, you know, fit well into their, into their system and they live in harmony and respect each other. They make fun of each other as well, but there's a, a kind of equality in the society that I think um, uh, we would do well to imitate. And so here's Lewis being a race prophet about how things could be. So this part was interesting because he's trying to push a bit. We've we've mentioned this term, uh, Oyarsa, and he's trying to figure out who rules. They mention that the or the or Oyarsa rules, but he gets some confusing answers. He's trying to figure out who's the most intelligent, but there's a bit of a debate there. Uh, but I thought it was intriguing how he asked, like, what happens if the Sorns, which we've talked about as being more intelligent, potentially, David, you said the philosophers and the Plato hierarchy, and that doesn't even register with them. You know, our bent personalities think, well, they've got all the intelligence, they can manipulate this, they can be, you know, narcissistically control this whole thing and be manipulative. And that doesn't even register to them, which I love going back to Andrew, what we were talking about earlier. Like, it's just a non-fallen world. They, they're like, huh? That just would, that wouldn't happen. Well, and what's the great sin in mere Christianity? The great sin is pride, in which Lewis defines it as, uh, in which chapter Lewis defines that vice as not wanting to have things, but wanting to have more than someone else. Mm. You know, and this whole competitive nature. And like you said, there's this there's this complete lack of co of competition, and so maybe there's a lack of you know pride or great sin. I don't. Yeah, the question about whether or not it's fallen, uh, the question about whether or not it's fallen is a good one. But um, there don't seem to be a whole lot of effects of the kind of gravity um, of the sin and the error that that uh, that characterizes the fauna, the the silent planet. It's at least thirty eight percent less. <laughs> 
Real funny, David. Resonant dad jokes. Oh yeah, your body part. <laughs> no, I, I, you know, David and, and Andrew connecting to that. Like that's something that we're now finally getting into that part. But I, I've mentioned this before how. I now know a bit more what to look for because of the the scholars that I had to have those conversations with. But the first time I read it without knowing some of the stuff that we've talked about from the medieval cosmos to Dante's influence and things like that, that I had no idea. This part I got and it came resoundingly clear was the beauty of, of a non-fallen world. We'll just kind of use that language for now. It just, the relationship with nature, with the world, the relationship you just described of the equality between these different creatures, the one body, many parts. Like I read that and whether I know this is a Christian story or not, I yearn for what he's describing here. I yearn for that intimate relationship with creation uh, to use it, but not abuse it. Um, I yearn for that intimate relationship with humans to use, not abuse um, each other in the best way possible to 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 be one body, many parts. And so that was something that's really stuck out to me. And we're finally starting to get into that. Mm-hmm. But you can see what Ransom brings to this planet, his perspective, when he's asking about the Sorns and he asks in a very roundabout way, what would happen if they tried to force you to do things? What he'd really like mm-hmm. to say is, what if they use their scientific resources for the exploitation of their uncivilized neighbors? This is what he's learnt on Falcandra. This is what he's learnt on Earth. Mm. And to them, being in this seemingly Edenic world, it just goes right over their head. They don't get it. After their significant debate, we're told that what emerged finally was that the Cerrone were perfectly helpless in a boat, and they couldn't fish to save their lives. They could hardly swim. <laughs> they could make no poetry. And even when the Frost made it for them, they could only understand the inferior sorts. <laughs> the dad that. jokes, the dog rolls. <laughs> and you've got a vocabulary problem here. Um, this idea of conflict and exploitation and all those words you just used, David, I think would be very seldom used or poorly understood there because those kinds of things I don't think really exist there. And we find the same sort of thing happening uh, in the next book in Paralandra where Ransom tries to tell her about death and about fear, right? And fear is one of those characteristics of a fallen world. When the children get back into Narnia, I think it's Lucy who says, have you noticed that you can't be afraid anymore? Try, you can't. And so there's just not this sense of fear. And so there's no vocabulary for a concept which doesn't exist in their world. And um, it's baffling to them that um, people would want to, you know, want to, people like Weston and Divine would want to come and colonize and exploit and, and, and tyrannize. Um, and that's one of the refreshing things I think about this book. It, it's an imaginative leap into a world that we have never known. And I think in that sense, it's a real triumph for Lewis. Well, in, in connecting to this, it's interesting because the conversation shifts to them talking about the silent planet, Earth. And Ransom describes some of it, but holds off on telling them about all of this fallen stuff we're talking about. War, industrialization. Uh, he's afraid to tell him he was brought here uh, to be given to the storms, believing them to be the dominant species. Like he just doesn't want them to know they're so pure. <laughs> he's starting to realize that he just doesn't want to share how bent the world mm-hmm. could be and how bent he is or they are essentially. And the bit here that resonated with me was when he says that 
some of the things he didn't want to tell them and some of the things he couldn't tell them because he realized the ignorance about his own planet. And as somebody that lives in a country that's not originally his own, I've definitely found that to be true when I'm peppered with questions about England and I just have to say, I don't know. Sorry, no idea. What's me in Michigan? I'm like, I don't know, guys. I'm geographically challenged. I know nothing about this place. Now, as, as they're having this conversation and he's explaining more to them his journey, what really piqued their interest was, and if you remember this from an earlier chapter, was the snapping jaws creatures in the water and Ransom encountered them. They called it the Hanakra, as I failed to assume in the philologist <laughs> part of it. I'll put it in the quiz next week. <laughs> it's a freebie. I need that. It's called the curve. They get very excited, except maybe the mothers. And we're going to learn more about this later, but we see they're ready for battle when they hear the name. Ransom and Hoyoy. It's kind of been a, a main class. Hoyoy. They head off to prepare for the boat. I liked the fact that it's pointed out that the tools were primitive, but that Ransom was nearly starting to be useful with them. I thought mm. that was kind of funny. He regards it as primitive, but he's not very good at it. Well, come on. If you're so advanced, surely you should be great at doing this. He's an intellectual. Exactly. <laughs> you know, this is the largest tool that he used. You know, <laughs> yeah, a, a stick with a bit of metal on it and some ink. Mm -hmm. Well, if all the above wasn't enough, and by that I mean all of these different creatures we're learning, there's another one that enters in. I put in quotation this spiritual type of creature. We see this at the end of this chapter as we wrap this chapter up, and it's called the Eldil. And he sees Eldil. Eldil. And he sees. Eldil. What would I do without you guys? <laughs> Sink like a stone. Get through it much quicker. <laughs> yeah. And he sees a little Shehras, which I used to think was Harasa, talking to no one. David, you want to say something? I already tell you. I was just going to ask you what the female singular for uh, Rosa is. Do you remember? Hraseni? Hresni. Hresni. That's close. That's the plural. Hresni. I thought Rosa was a plural. So I think the singular might have been, so he sees a Hres. No, I think it is like Spanish, actually, insofar as Rosa is the plural, regardless of the gender. But you never thought we'd have quite so much fun with words. Yeah, but that's because you Brits say the whole team were. <laughs> you and your anyway, sorry, down. we interrupted you, Matthew. Please continue. <laughs> no, it was just interesting. He comes across, he sees this little Shihiras talking to something, can't see it, but like, what's going on? He's starting to realize they're not crazy, so he's probably missing something, and he learns that there's some sort of spiritual type thing, but we don't actually learn a lot right now. So I don't actually have much of this section other than we're about to be introduced to another piece to this puzzle of the Malachandra metaphysical world. Mm. But he does assume that the girl is just engaged in imaginative play in the end. Right. He underthinks it rather than overthinks it. Um, and actually here is where we have another huge instance of one of the major themes of... I have no more alcohol left. Till we have faces, because it's vision and faith, right? And there has to be this faith in order to, to see. And just like um, the Ransom can't see the Eldild, it's not dissimilar to the ignorance um, and the fallenness of or uh, Orwal, who can't see the palace. 
um, and she can't see what's obvious to everybody else. And so these ideas of faith and vision, you know, of course, run the gamut in in Lewis's work. And certainly, we shouldn't be surprised to see that theme, which is this a similar theme in in Lewis's second best book. You know, where the um, the transparency and they can't see. You know, uh, they can see through themselves. This idea that vision is something that's uh, that's important and growing and a key to really all kinds of um, important knowledge. Well, gentlemen, this is where we would be normally going to chapter 12, but David was right. And this took Shook on David. He was like, <laughs> <laughs> those words were dirty coming out of my mouth. Mm. Anything else you guys would like to say? Mm. Just that I'm really looking forward to the next chapter because these two, we really do learn so much stuff about the planet and about the viewpoint of Thrasa. I'm so mad we didn't get to do chapter 12. I wanted to talk about <laughs> the pleasure side of things. My quote was incredible. Yeah. <laughs> next week, next week. I know, but well, I don't get to lead it. Someone else is leading it. It's such a bummer. You can do it as well if you like. <laughs> I've already written it technically, so I guess I could if you guys want. Yeah, I, I nominate Matt. Me too. Um, <laughs> motion carries. Well, and we have it. Good. All in favor? Aye. Aye. The motion. The motion carries. Every um, listener's well, like, no. <laughs> I'd be remiss not to mention another um, clear pointer of what happens until we have faces. I'm sorry, Andrew. I'd be remiss I, not to point alcohol. out. <laughs> I, I gave you six. <laughs> I'd be remiss not to mention another uh, clear pointer towards a major theme until we have faces, and that's that the wise are the poets. And so the fox um, loves poetry, and that's a, a lingua franca for them. And and Lewis, um, uh, this is Lewis right as he's getting to know Charles Williams, whose poetry he loves. And so the poet figure is important to him. And somebody who loves poetry is somebody who can be trusted. It's part of Lewis's epistemology of reading, that he can trust language, he can trust story, just like Peter trusts the Robins. And so um, that's another thing that's happening in this passage um, that, that are really kind of setting the groundwork for most of Lewis's fiction to follow. Well, on to the audience question of the week. In this one, the question I love to ask the audience to, to, to fill in, David's smiling right now because he sees I don't have one written. He's like, where's Matt going with this? <laughs> Is I don't actually, I don't have one specifically for this chapter. And, it's in, in, and that's what I really am actually curious is we're starting to get into the beauty. We just had this whole conversation of fallen versus not fallen. Is this resonating with you? In a sense that are you being drawn to this world that Lewis is painting of a non-fallen world? Is, is something stirring in you? By this point when I was reading this book, something was, I will answer this for you, something was stirring in me of like, you know, I, I don't think I'm living beautifully and intentionally with God's creation uh, in the best sense. And so for me, the answer would be yes, it was stirring something and I could describe that. But I'd be curious from our listeners, is, is, is there a stirring going on here, a longing for a different way of living? That's the question. So email hmm. us, contact at pintswithjack.com. Go to our website. There's a contact us thing. Go to any of our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, I hear the call for final drinks. So I want to thank all of our listeners, uh, which David just gave us the numbers and was even slightly more than I thought. We're getting better analytics from Apple and Spotify. I'd love to thank our top tier supporters, which continues to grow. We're getting wonderful people in our Slack community every single week, some new introductions. Uh, since we had a long off season, we had kind of a pause for a while there. 
Uh, and so it's been nice to get some new fresh names in there. So by the way, if you guys are interested, we haven't talked about this, but we have the Slack channel. That's uh, quite a large community now. And it's of people that really love C.S. Lewis. So if you support us on Patreon at, I think it's $5 or more, you're invited into the Slack community, which by that we've been calling it the Slackers, but as a reminder, we're, we're leveraging the technology Slack to create these different channels to talk about the books, prayer requests, Lewis stuff. We got a bird and a baby channel. So a lot of wonderful stuff, guys. So Definitely, if you're interested in joining that. Uh, but specifically, I'd like to thank our top tier supporters, Matt, Jake, James, Erica, Marvin, Joel, Deborah, Amanda, Thomas, Bill, Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. And we pray for all of our listeners and Leon Hainsby and all the prayer requests in our Slack channel every Tuesday. So if you enjoyed this episode, please write us a review. We read them all. We really love them, guys. And so write us them. Uh, and join us next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Chin chin. Cheers. Chin chin. <laughs>